NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. The President and the House Speaker have a deal to raise the debt ceiling. Congress has just about seven days to sign on. Can they get it done? And the last time the U.S. got this close to default, the country's credit rating was downgraded. We'll hear from a person responsible for that call. Every time I walk my dog in the morning and in the evening, I had a bodyguard with me. And new cases of HIV declined in the U.S., but the progress is uneven. Plus, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Michaela Watkins on their new movie, You Hurt My Feelings. It's Sunday, May 28th. News is next. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is urging both chambers of Congress to pass the debt ceiling agreement he's reached with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. With the nation inching closer to a potential default, NPR's Winter Johnston reports on the tentative deal reached last night. In brief remarks on Saturday night, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the two sides had reached a compromise. We have come to an agreement in principle. We still have a lot of work to do, but I believe this is an agreement in principle that's worthy of the American people. According to sources familiar with the negotiations, the agreement raises the debt ceiling for two years while cutting and capping some government spending over the same period. It also includes tougher work requirements for some federal assistance programs. McCarthy says the final text of the legislation is expected to be posted later today, and lawmakers will have 72 hours to review it. A vote on the bill is expected in the House on Wednesday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Uh, the work to avert a default is far from done. Congress must now rush to push the package through before June 5th. The day Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said the government will run out of money to pay its bills. A House vote is considered by many to be a test of McCarthy's speakership. Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton is now facing a trial in the state Senate after the Republican-controlled state House overwhelmingly voted to impeach him. Martinez Beltran with the Texas Newsroom reports. The Texas House overwhelmingly voted 121 to 23 to adopt the articles of impeachment against Attorney General Ken Paxton. The majority of Republicans voted to impeach, including GOP State Representative Jeff Leach. He appears to show little or no contrition for scandalous behavior while in office. Paxton has been accused of constitutional bribery, the religion of duty, and retaliation against former employees. Paxton has denied any allegations of wrongdoing. He's been immediately suspended from his duties pending a trial in the Texas Senate. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. The governor of Russia's Belgorod region has ordered all schools along the border with Ukraine to close immediately for the summer. After last week's cross-border raid, the governor says it's no longer safe to keep them open. The BBC's Sasha Schlichter reports. The feeling one gets on reading Governor Vyacheslav Gladkov's announcement is that his region has been left to fend for itself, almost as if the Kremlin and top brass were not expecting Ukraine to respond to Russia's full-scale invasion. The past week saw an audacious cross-border militia raid followed by intense artillery and mortar shelling. So all schools will be closed from tomorrow, not only along the border with Ukraine, but also in Belgorod city and its suburbs. The BBC's Sasha Schlichter reporting, and you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Boston Celtics have forced a Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals. They won in dramatic fashion in Game 6 last night in Miami, 104-103. Derek White stunned the Heat and their fans when he moved quickly to grab a rebound and tap in the game-winning shot with under a second left on the clock. Celtics coach Joe Masula shared his players' secret to coming back after losing the first three games of the series. Faith, love, togetherness, physicality, belief, hope, all those things combined. But it starts with the locker room. So uh, those guys had a choice to make, and they chose to believe in each other. If the Celtics win tomorrow night in Boston, then they would become the first NBA team to win a playoff series after losing the first three games. The Celtics are hoping to return to the NBA Finals for the second season in a row. This weekend, the state opened its pools and beaches across Massachusetts while the Department of Conservation and Recreation tries to hire 700 lifeguards. The state increased the hourly wage to $27 an hour for lifeguards, along with creating a $1,000 bonus for people who worked the entire summer. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll is a former lifeguard, and she says the state also will pay for lifeguard certifications. You're not quite certified yet, think you're a strong swimmer or someone who's a real leader in your community. Uh, We we really want to work together to fill these jobs and provide a really great summer experience for someone who's looking for work. Staff is needed for nearly 60 sites statewide. Today's Somerville is bringing back its first Memorial Day parade since 2016. The parade had previously been canceled because of weather, construction, or the pandemic. The events will include both a celebratory parade and more somber ceremony at the Somerville Veterans Cemetery. The parade kicks off in Davis Square at noon. It's 67 degrees in Boston with sunshine today, highs in the upper 80s, lows in the upper 50s tonight, then a sunny Memorial Day, tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s, Tuesday sunshine highs in the low 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. No rest this holiday weekend for debt limit negotiators who have reached an agreement in principle to avoid a first ever intentional move by the U.S. to default on its obligations by not raising the debt ceiling. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is following the deal making and joins us now. Thanks for being with us, Domenico. Hey, Aisha. Good morning. So what do we know about this agreement in principle? Well, we know that the debt limit, uh, the debt ceiling is going to be lifted until 2025, which notably as a political editor that, uh, you know, means that this is after the 2024 presidential election. They're not Mm going to have to be dealing with this uh, through the rest of this congressional term, which is probably good on all sides for uh, both uh, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, because, uh, you know, this takes them out of a lot of the pressure of having to build coalitions to keep it. Some other things 
in this are a cap on non-defense spending for two years. You can have the same level in 2024 with a slight 1% increase in 2025. Republicans had wanted 10 years, so clearly a compromise there. Um, there's about $600 million in unused COVID funds that are going to be clawed back. That was a Republican priority. This reduces uh, the money uh, that Biden had gotten uh, for IRS agents to be able to go after tax cheats by about $10 billion. Biden had secured about $80 billion. Uh, maintains increases to funding for low-income students, uh, money for loan forgiveness, cancer research, other things that were Biden priorities and Democratic priorities. The thorniest pieces here really were two things, appeared to be on work requirements for some federal assistance programs and permitting reform for energy, um, you know, the compromise limits how long people under 54 without children could receive food stamps, but it exempts veterans and the homeless. This expires in 2030, so it's only temporary. Um, and it speeds up the review time, and this is a big money issue, on some environmental reviews of some energy projects, which were big Republican priorities. There's nothing the extremes are going to be happy about with this, but Biden in his statement last night explicitly called this a compromise, and that's what it is. So the Treasury Department updated its guidance on when the country would run out of money to pay its bills. And the new guidance gives a few more days breathing room, right? Yeah, I mean, going from June 1st to June 5th was a big deal because of really procedure in uh, the in the Congress. You know, the House has set out 72 hours for uh, lawmakers to be able to read bills. So having it be June 1st would have presented a real problem. I mean, Wall Street was really watching June 15th as a big date because of that being when the, the country would actually default on paying its bills. Um, uh, because the payments would be too, um, you know, and they need time to pass whatever it's going to be. We're looking at a potential vote on Wednesday in the House, maybe on Thursday in the Senate, if all goes smoothly. And that's right at the drop dead date. I mean, is a little more time a good thing or a bad thing for, you know, could it give lawmakers more time to kind of scuttle this if they don't like the deal? Yeah, I mean, this isn't exactly like, hurry up, vote on this. We got to do it. Otherwise, uh, you know, the country defaults on its debt. Now there is a little bit of time for the right and for the left to be able to think of some ways to get some of their priorities back in um, or not, or figure out if Kevin McCarthy can get a majority of his conference, as he says he wants, to vote for this with Democrats. Uh, you know, Democratic leaders seem pretty confident that they're going to be able to deliver the votes on this. Um, you know, certainly going to be some holdouts and those who vote no or who are allowed to vote no. Um, you know, one of the things that some Democrats really wanted was some taxes on corporations to close some of the revenue. Well, that's not in the deal either. And we're probably going to see some machinations by some Republicans on the hard right, as we've seen in the past, try to introduce some amendments that would appease them, would appeal to them. But that also takes time. And so that could slow some things down. A couple other lawmaker stories I want to raise with you this morning. First, some action in the Texas House aimed at uh, the attorney general there. What's going on in Austin? Well, Wow, what a story this is with the Attorney General Ken Paxton. If you know about him nationally, it's probably because of all the lawsuits that are called Texas versus the United States. He's been a real thorn in Democratic administration's side with a host of, uh, you know, just trying to stop any kind of uh, things that would affect states that uh, President Biden and uh, former President Biden and President Obama have uh, have tried to have, sorry President Biden and former President Obama and what they've tried to pass uh, in the last um, several years. You know he's been in hot water for some time. You know he uh, has gotten th this this lawsuit that I'm sorry there was a lawsuit that was filed by some senior members in his office for a real estate deal and that's really what sort of set this off because the 
Texas House decided this $3.3 million lawsuit that then the Texas House was going to have to pay out to these folks. They said that's not a real good use of taxpayer money. They'd grown sort of irritated with Paxton and, and they wound up uh, saying that they that that they were going to impeach him. He's and he's temporarily now removed from office pending a Senate trial. And, and finally, back to D.C., there's been a lot of hubbub about California Senator Dianne Feinstein. Definitely. And there was a California Democratic convention this past weekend. I think we're going to see some Democrats start to come around what we hear from Hillary Clinton, which is leaves Feinstein in place to be able to pass judges. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. For more on age and politics, we turn to Larry Sabato. He is the director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So let's start with that NPR PBS Marist poll that just came out. It shows a significant majority of Americans say President Biden's mental fitness is a, quote, real concern. What do you make of that number? 62 percent is pretty high. It is indeed high, and it's something the White House has to be concerned about. I think there are two pieces to this. The first piece is obvious, which is, that Joe Biden is already the oldest president in American history uh, by quite a ways. But the other piece to me is more interesting. I think when people are unhappy about a president, uh, many people, including partisans uh, from the same party as the president, look for something to cite to express their unhappiness or disagreement with the president on substantive terms. And right now, we know the country is unhappy uh, for lots of different reasons. I think uh, inflation would be at the top of the list, but partisanship is at a record high, at least for modern times. And there are many other issues that come into this. Mm. Why do voters vote for older politicians and then turn around and question their mental fitness? Well, that's a good question. And we're all thinking of Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, in this era. Uh, there was Senator Strom Thurmond in an earlier era. He actually served in the Senate until he turned 100. Uh, so, yes, I mean, it, this affects both parties. They're elderly politicians in both parties. I guess you could say they don't know when to quit. They don't know when to get off the stage, which is a problem for all of us. We need to know when to get off the stage. But people vote for them, too. People just keep voting yes, for them, right? that's exactly right. Now, why does that happen? Uh, partly, it's a function of uh, party identification in a time when we have intense partisanship. If that uh, candidate gets the party nomination, even if he or she is 85 or 90 or 96 years old, they will usually be reelected. It's also a function of name ID and respect for the individual, probably looking back on a successful career. You know, people don't like to be cruel about it, but uh, at some point, it really isn't in the interests of the individual public official, and it certainly isn't in the interests of the electorate in that state. But people often don't see it that way. Turning to the Republicans, former President Donald Trump is leading the Republican contenders. He's 76. During Trump's presidency, there was all sorts of talk about his mental fitness. But does it just read differently because of who Trump is and also that there's a whole lot of other stuff that people can kind of pick on when it comes to Trump? Well, certainly that's true. If you're going to list your concerns about Trump, you wouldn't start with age. 
but he is very assertive. No matter what he's saying and no matter what he's doing, whether it's wise or not to be assertive, he is assertive. And one way to evaluate the assertiveness is to suggest that this person has a lot of energy and that's the way it should be for a president or presidential candidate. So uh, I think Trump benefits from that. Is there any way to maybe make sure that people aren't serving beyond the age where they're mentally and physically able to? You would have to have a constitutional amendment to require that uh, congressmen and senators or presidents not serve beyond a certain age, but it's never going to be passed, so I wouldn't worry about it. You know, in the end, in a democracy, you have to depend upon the good sense of the electorate. Sometimes we're disappointed, but still, the good sense and good judgment of the electorate is the ultimate doorstop. But why haven't we seen more support for younger candidates in either party? Well, one thing you have to consider is that the uh, lifespan has been lengthening, and that, of course, is a good thing. So that today, 70 isn't necessarily seen as old, for example, which it certainly once was. When Eisenhower turned 70 toward the end of his two terms, I think also it may be that parties and their electorates look at older candidates as more seasoned, less likely to make serious errors on the campaign trail or in office, simply people they can rely on to a greater degree. Now, we all know some younger people in public office um, can do at least as good a job, often a better job, even in terms of judgment. But these things are decisions that voters make based on the choice that they have. And it's the partisan electorate. It's a much smaller group of people than the general electorate that make the decisions on the candidates that will appear on the fall ballot. So a lot of this is predetermined when people go to the polls. That's Larry Sabato, director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. It is 918, and coming up in about 20 minutes, a new approach to public restrooms that makes sense for people with profound disabilities. It's 67 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs in the upper 80s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. And Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu slash MBA. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the House could vote as soon as Wednesday on the debt ceiling deal he's reached with President Biden. Congressional passage of the agreement would avert a potential default, but it's unclear if McCarthy has the votes to get it through the House. 
Former Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz, Liz Cheney is set to deliver the commencement address at her alma mater this morning. She's speaking at Colorado College amid speculation that she may enter the race for the Republican presidential nomination. And Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is awaiting trial in the state Senate after the Texas House voted to impeach him this weekend, suspending him from office. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. As we've been reporting this morning, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have a deal to raise the nation's borrowing limit, avoiding default. If Congress approves it in time, then all is well. Maybe not. Fitch Ratings, one of the three major ratings agencies, has put the U.S. on notice that it's taking a hard look at America's prized AAA credit rating. And that's giving NPR's David Gura deja vu. Back in 2011, the U.S. was in a very similar position. It was days away from defaulting on its debt for the first time in history. House Speaker John Boehner and President Obama were at loggerheads over raising the debt limit. Negotiations had dragged on and on. And then, in early August, there was an agreement. Congress has now approved a compromise to reduce the deficit and avert a default that would have devastated our economy. There was relief. The U.S. would be able to pay its bills. But that relief didn't last long. A few days later, there was a bombshell announcement on a Friday, hours after the markets closed. When one of the big three credit rating agencies, Standard & Poor's, downgraded the U.S. government's credit rating. This was huge news. The U.S. had never lost its top-tier AAA credit rating. And to many people, it was a shock. After all, lawmakers in the White House had clinched a deal. S&P was worried about the debt and the deficit, but the recent political fight raised questions about the country's ability to pay its creditors in the future. The downgrade stunned Washington, and Wall Street panicked. U.S. stocks were tumbling at the opening bell amid a rout in global markets. President Obama addressed S&P's decision in a speech to the American people, and his Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, didn't hold back in an interview with CNBC. I think S&P's shown really terrible judgment, and they've handled themselves very poorly, and they've shown a stunning lack of knowledge about basic U.S. fiscal budget math. S&P had to defend the downgrade to the public. And that's how John Chambers, then the chair of the committee that made the call, found himself in unfamiliar territory as a guest on cable TV in primetime. The political brinkmanship we saw over raising the debt ceiling was something that was really beyond our expectations. S&P had warned the U.S. its AAA rating was in jeopardy months earlier. And 12 years later, Chambers remembers how much work he and his colleagues put in before they voted. 
They looked at data and projections from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. And Chambers and his boss traveled to Washington to talk with government officials. They feared political divisions had become so deep, policymakers wouldn't be able to make important, consequential decisions. After the downgrade, Chambers was thrust into the spotlight, and he paid a big price personally. Every time I walk my dog in the morning and in the evening, I had a bodyguard with me. Chambers spent 24 years at S&P. Ratings agencies are used to pushback from companies and countries. But he was unprepared for this kind of vitriol. Chambers remembers his inbox filling up with hate mail and death threats. I didn't take the subway for six uh, months because people thought I might get pushed in front of an oncoming train. Chambers says he understood the significance of that downgrade, even if he couldn't imagine the blowback, the outrage from investors and executives, from people around the world, including the president of the U.S. Well, we didn't come to it lightly. Um, It um, was an important decision. It was probably the most important decision I made in my career. And it's one Chambers says he doesn't regret, especially when he looks at what's happened since and what's happening now. The U.S.'s fiscal situation is worse, and so is the political climate. And although Chambers is retired now, with no insight into how his former employer and the other two major rating agencies view the U.S., he says these protracted fights that take the U.S. to the brink of default are damaging. Every time we have incidents like this, it's just uh, even if you get through them without defaulting, it chips away at the confidence that people have in the U.S., And Chambers says it threatens the United States' leadership position in the global economy. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The U.S. is making progress in controlling the HIV epidemic. New cases are slowing down, according to a report released this week by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's encouraging news, but the numbers also show that not everyone is benefiting from those improvements. NPR's Will Stone joins us now to explain. Hi, Will. Hi there. Let's start with the good news. How big of an improvement are we talking about here? Well, the CDC found that new cases of HIV were 12 percent lower in 2021 as compared to 2017. So that's a real and meaningful step in the right direction. And it's primarily because infections fell substantially in young people. There was actually a 34 percent decrease in cases among teenagers and those in their early 20s. And here we're primarily talking about gay and bisexual men who account for the majority of new cases in this age group and more broadly in the U.S. And do we have a sense of why that is? There are a number of factors. Uh, The biggest, though, is clearly PrEP, and that's the medication you take to prevent HIV infections. The percentage of people who would benefit from PrEP and are being prescribed it more than doubled since 2017. I spoke to Patrick Sullivan, who's an epidemiologist at Emory University. We now have a generation of younger gay and bisexual men who've really grown up and become sexually active at a time when PrEP was available. The one thing that I think we still have to really pay attention to in the data that were just released, it wasn't really realized evenly across the racial and ethnic groups. And that last point is really the other side of this seemingly positive news that some long entrenched disparities actually appear to be growing. So what are we seeing along those lines? 
It's pretty stark in this new data. If you look at white people, it's estimated close to 80% who would benefit from PrEP are being prescribed it. But for those who are Hispanic and Latino, that number drops down to 21%, and it's only 11% among Black people. So it's really not a surprise that new HIV infections are disproportionately affecting these groups. Uh, You also see disparities play out geographically. So you're saying that some parts of the U.S. are being more affected by HIV than others? That's right. Uh, At this point, actually, more than half of new infections are happening in the South. I spoke to Will Ramirez about this. He's with the Southern AIDS Coalition. Raising awareness that PrEP exists does not automatically trigger demand and use. There's still things that they have to contend with, especially here in the South, NCHIV uh, sentiment, anti-gay stigma. And then, you know, many people who are eligible for PrEP, they don't access it. Ramirez says uh, one clear barrier is simply not having health coverage. Uh, Many states in the South haven't expanded Medicaid. They don't necessarily have programs that cover the cost of labs and visits. And on top of that, you need to find a doctor who's willing to prescribe the drug. What does this mean looking forward? Didn't the U.S. set a goal of reducing new HIV infections by 90 percent by the end of this decade? Well, it's not going to achieve that if these big gaps remain, especially when it comes to PrEP. Uh, Nina Harawa is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at UCLA, and she points out that prevention efforts can't only focus on gay and bisexual men. About one-fifth of new cases of HIV affect women. There's also more outreach that can be done for people who inject drugs and are at risk. And Harawa believes that improving access to PrEP, while still very important, can't be the only solution here people have about taking a medication when they're not sick. I think some of that is cultural, and I'm somewhat concerned that the HIV prevention strategy has been so shaped around PrEP because I think that kind of resistance to taking something when you're not sick is stronger among people of color. Which is why she thinks there also needs to be attention to other forms of prevention, like condom use, early testing, and ultimately to the root causes that contribute to the racial disparities in HIV. NPR's Will Stone, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Most of California's massive snowpack, well, it still hasn't melted, meaning communities downstream face possible flooding. In fact, the record-setting winter revealed that a lot of flood infrastructure needs improving. There is an innovative solution that's gaining traction, and Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk is here to tell us all about it. Hi, Lauren. Hey there. So summer's just around the corner. How long will Californians be at risk for flooding? It'll be all the way through June, and it's because of the big melt, as it's known. The snowpack in the mountains is still about three times the normal amount. So there's just a ton of water if it has to make its way down. And the real risk will happen if there's just prolonged heat waves that really get the melt going. What are the weaknesses in the state's flood infrastructure? Yeah, there's just a lot of aging flood infrastructure out there that just isn't up to the job. That was the big lesson from the winter. And floods happened in two of the communities that suffered a lot of damage, which were Pajaro and Planada, because of levees that broke and hundreds of homes were damaged. Does that mean levees need to be raised and improved on a really massive scale? Yeah, there's a huge backlog of work that needs to be done. I mean, in the Central Valley alone, it's as much as $30 billion worth. But there is another option to prevent floods. And I'm going to take you to a community that really illustrates this. I went to Grayson, California, which is a small town in the Central Valley. And that's where I met John Mataka. 
Naturally, when you live by the river, you're nervous when you see the water rising. We're right on the edge of town where the last row of houses is, and the San Joaquin River is overflowing, just spreading beyond its banks. When other towns flooded this year, Mataka watched it closely because he knew it easily could have been his community. Like those towns, Grayson is home to farm workers, you know, mostly lower income, and its infrastructure has been underfunded for decades. It's not just farm workers and people that don't speak English living in these communities. We're people. We're human. We got needs, and you need to invest in our communities. But even with all the water here this year, Mataka has felt a little bit better because of a new project that was invested in nearby. I believe that it saved our community from some drastic flooding this year. You can see it just upriver. We love to see the flood water on our property. We'd love to see it flood on our property. John Carlin works at River Partners, a river restoration nonprofit. We're at a point where the river has spread across a huge area, and it's all on purpose. We head out in an aluminum boat to see it. Very good. Yeah, this was like a tomato field, and now it feels like we're out in the middle of uh, Louisiana in a swamp somewhere. The flood water goes halfway up the cottonwood and willow trees around us. We're looking back in time. We're looking at what this river used to look like 100 years ago. This land used to be farm fields, but 10 years ago, River Partners began a restoration. They put in native plants and took down the levees and berms next to the river, so it would create a floodplain, basically giving the river some space when it needs it. Rivers move, and that's a really hard concept for us, you know, with property rights and roads and infrastructure. The idea is that giving the river room up here will hold some of the floodwaters. So downstream, in towns like Grayson, the river isn't flowing quite as high. All this water flow past populated areas. So you're taking that pressure off those downstream communities by moving the levees back up here. It also creates some much-needed habitat for birds and endangered salmon. And the land is in the process of becoming California's next state park. Carlin says the hope is that these kind of projects take off because the idea is to work with nature instead of against it. And Lauren, you're back with us through the magic of radio. Are these kind of floodplain projects to give rivers more space gaining traction in other places? The Biden administration has really been pushing federal agencies to do more projects like this, especially because as the climate gets hotter, rainfall is just getting more intense. So rivers are having to handle these bigger flows. But, you know, land is valuable, so it can be tough to put these projects together. Right. You know, people want waterfront properties. So do people have to move out of the way to create these floodplains? Yeah, I mean, that that can be the hurdle. It's easier to acquire the land in less populated areas, you know, like the project I visited. But other projects have had to buy people out and relocate them. And there's another big challenge, which is regulatory. All the laws are in place to keep levees up forever. You know, don't move them. Don't take them down. So these projects take a lot of time. But, you know, the alternative is just to keep raising existing levees, which is very expensive. And so that's why these floodplain projects are really starting to take off. That's Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Today we remember a former Navy corpsman who served in Afghanistan. A corpsman is a medic in the Navy. George Michael Todd died earlier this month in Atlanta of what's called sudden cardiac death. He was 38 years old. Todd was also a hip-hop artist known as Doc Todd. In 2017, NPR's Elizabeth Blair talked to him about his album, Combat Medicine, and now she brings us this appreciation. George Michael Todd had a few nicknames, Doc Mick. He was a big guy with piercing blue eyes and a big personality. Pastor Chris McDaniel spoke at his funeral. First time I met Mick, he came up to me after church. I had just finished preaching a sermon and just like swallowed me up in a hug. And the first thing he says, I'm a rapper. And I was like, sure you are. He really was. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. Doc Todd was born in Memphis. He joined the Navy in his mid-20s. In 2009, he was in Afghanistan during an American push in the Helmand River Valley, which was controlled by the Taliban. Todd treated blast and burn injuries. The heat was also brutal, says Colonel Eric Metter. The guys just couldn't stay cooled off. So Doc Todd and some of the other guys started pulling guys off the line at about a third of a time and telling them to jump in the canal. You know, so, hey, these guys are still fighting. Doc and his crew grabs a bunch of guys, jump in the canal, get wet, get back out. Now you get back up on the line, continue fighting, and let's rotate, get the next guys in there. So that's what he did on that day and probably saved a lot of guys from being heat casualties. Todd lost close friends during that battle. When he returned to the U.S., he had PTSD. In 2017, he told me it took several years before he got help. Throughout, he wrote rhymes. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown, pushing up stones. Doc Todd's music is passed around widely among veterans. His most popular song is called Not Alone. Not Alone is about empowerment. Not Alone is about taking charge of your life, taking charge of your transition. Doc Todd was known to constantly pick up the phone to check in with fellow vets. Before he deployed to Afghanistan, he fell head over heels in love with his future wife. At his funeral, Abby Todd read a letter he wrote to her from Afghanistan. I dream about you almost every night. You soothe me so much and turn my nervous energy into something positive. You make me a better person, and I thank you deeply for that. It's crazy. No matter how much I wash my feet, they still stink. (laughs) Just wanted to tell you that. I don't know why. The word authentic was used over and over again to describe Todd. Here's Pastor Chris McDaniel. The best way we honor the passing of a gentle giant, a big-hearted man, is to try to be as real as he is. Doc Mick Todd is survived by his wife and two daughters, his parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, and a whole lot of friends. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Sometimes, you know, being lost is a gift. Now, for real, listen to me, it's a gift. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. The Celtics beat the Heat in Miami last night, 104 to 103. In a wild finish, Derek White tapped in a rebound as time expired. After losing the first three games of the Eastern Conference Finals, Jason Tatum says he and his Celtics teammates knew they had dug themselves into a hole. It don't get too much worse than being down 0-3. Like, we feel like we've been to hell and back. The Celtics are only the fourth NBA team to erase a 3-0 deficit in a best-of-seven series and force a deciding game. And if they win tomorrow night in Boston, then the Celtics would become the only NBA team to come back and win a playoff series after losing games 1-2-3. and three. A victory tomorrow would send the Celtics to the finals to face the Denver Nuggets. Today, Somerville holds its first Memorial Day parade since 2016. That steps off in Davis Square at noon. In the past few years, the city had canceled the parade because of either weather, construction, or the pandemic. It's 71 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs reaching the upper 80s. WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu and Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. Fans of HBO Succession have no clue what's coming Sunday night, but among the possible plot twists, there is this one certainty. It's all coming to an end. This whole family is a nest of vipers. They'll wrap themselves around you, and they'll suffocate you. We unpack the Succession series finale Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Summertime is here. The season of blocked off streets for big civic events like the Taste of Chicago or this weekend's Carnival in San Francisco. If you're a person with disabilities, public facilities like restrooms are often a major problem at events like these, even if everything meets the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's because there are rarely enough facilities for people with severe or profound disabilities. Texas Public Radio's Jackie Velez reports on an effort in San Antonio to add some dignity to the rows of porta potties at America's street festivals and fireworks shows. Tracy Lewin understands more than most the need for a specialized bathroom for people like her son Mason, who has multiple disabilities and needs to be hoisted to change positions. As Mason was getting older, I realized that one of the challenges that we were facing, uh, primarily myself because I'm 5'2 on a good day, was that he was going to be taller than me rather quickly. And I was running out of spaces that I could change him when we were out um, in public together. So Lewin decided to do something about it. She partnered with a local San Antonio nonprofit called Disability SA. And after three years of fundraising and months of construction, 
they've created a $130,000 mobile changing unit. Let's take a tour. Recently, it made a stop at the Fiesta Especial Celebration at the Alamo Dome in downtown San Antonio. Lewin leads me into the 27-foot trailer. I should note that I use a wheelchair and I appreciate the ramp up into it. The mobile changing unit has a wheelchair accessible toilet. Also, if you're in a motorized wheelchair, we have a space with an outlet so you can recharge your wheelchair. In the back of the trailer is an adjustable plastic changing table. It's the size of a full-sized bed and has a handheld shower above it. Lewin says it's still a work in progress. It'll be motorized and you'll be able to move it up or down depending on where you're at. Um, level for transfer, also important for the person, not only for the person who needs to be placed on the table, but also for the caregiver. There's also a Hoyer lift to help people move from a wheelchair to the changing table or toilet. Joanne Serna used the mobile changing unit today with her daughter Vanessa. Vanessa has a neurological disorder that affects muscle movement. Serna called it a godsend because it makes it easier to take her daughter to festivals. This unit has everything. It has a changing table, it has a Hoyer, has a toilet. And it's secure, it's private, and it's just, it's wonderful. Tracy Lewin beams when she hears comments about what this service means to people. To see this in person, out in community, my mother-in-law is here from Michigan, came out and saw it for herself, and we teared up inside the mobile changing unit because it means something to the people who honestly have some of the hardest struggles who battle to get just the basic necessities met. The idea that you can toilet in privacy and dignity like any other person, um, you know, should be happening for everyone. Lewin's dream is a fleet of these mobile changing units. There's already a similar effort underway in Los Angeles. She says each MCU should have a name. The first one is called Mason, after Tracy Lewin's son, the inspiration for it all. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Velez in San Antonio. I am Karuk, a singer, songwriter, producer living in Nashville. If I were a fish and you caught me, you'd say, look at that fish shimmering in the sun. Such a rare one. Can't believe that you caught one. If I were a fish was written when I was feeling out of place and like I didn't fit in. I was getting a lot of hate comments online. And so my girlfriend, Olivia Barton, wanted to do something to make me feel better. She was like, let's make something weird. Like, what's the weirdest thing that you can think of? And I said, well, if I were a fish, I think that all of the weird things about me would be cool. And she was like, that's weird. Let's do it. Walking around and singing my song. I say, damn, they're cute and sing along. We just sat in the car, writing the song, just slapping on the steering wheel, clapping our hands, just writing it like that. I don't think that we intended on making a happy song. It just kind of happened. And I personally just love kazoo. And so I had to bring some kazoos on there. I also wanted percussion and it was really fun. There was three or four of us in the room. We were all just banging on different things. I think somebody was banging on a light pole. Somebody else was just patting on their knees. Olivia had a kazoo in her mouth and I was just kind of banging away on this kick drum. And we just did maybe two takes and layered it over 
the acoustic take that we did, and that's really the song. It was very simple, but like very fun. Using an upbeat tone to talk about something serious is kind of my specialty. I think I've used humor to get through really hard times. Whenever I figured out that I could do that in music, it just felt like a really big missing puzzle piece for me. If I were a rock, you would pick me up and say that's a nice rock. Skippiest on the lake. Pop, 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 I'm the perfect shape. I think I'm constantly having to learn to accept new parts of myself because I'm constantly learning about myself. You know, I recently came out as non-binary and that was really scary and a hard thing to learn about myself, but has been so wonderful accepting that part of me and embracing it. I was actually on tour whenever I kind of came out. My bandmates and I were in the car and they were talking to me about pronouns and asking me what I wanted to do. And I was like, I just don't know. I'm not sure. I'm so scared to make the jump. And they were just like, why don't we just call you they, them for the rest of the tour and see how it feels. And a month later, I was like, this is it. There's no going back. You know, I think it's an interesting thing that I wrote the song from a place of like, I don't fit in, I don't have a community, I don't feel like people get me. And then to have a response of millions of people say, I get you and I want more of this and I feel this way too. I think that has been profound, not only as a musician in my career, but just as a human being. It has been really healing to be seen and heard by so many people. If I were fish, that's musician Corinne Savage, professionally known as Karuk, and their song, If I Were a Fish. You can hear it on their upcoming EP, Serious Person Part One. The new movie, You Hurt My Feelings, has a simple premise. A novelist discovers her husband doesn't like her book, despite telling her over and over how much he does. How could he possibly respect me? Of course he respects you. <sighs> no, not if he doesn't like my work. You know that. He's probably been lying to me this whole time. No, there's just no way. He's a liar. But that simple premise leads to a movie about love and art and the lies we tell each other to keep going. The film stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the novelist and Michaela Watkins as her sister. They join us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Well, how fun. My favorite station. <laughs> exactly. Oh! I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so, Julia, your character, as we mentioned, gets upset that her husband has been telling her he likes her book while saying something else behind her back. But then at the same time in the movie, she gets a little bit in trouble because she's telling her son that his play will be wonderful, even though she hasn't read a word of it. What do you think about that conflict of the way that we talk to our loved ones about the work that they do. Well, I think the movie certainly examines um, the, the idea of, are you your work? Is your worth connected to your work? This is an interesting thing to think about. 
And for artists, it is. And for artists <laughs> particularly. Yes, yes totally. <laughs> and I think it also examines what does it mean to be supportive in a relationship? Does that include truth-telling? Does that include complete honesty? Um, and it really is sort of a meditation on all of that. Doesn't provide answers necessarily, but it it explores those ideas. Really, in relationships, it can seem like honesty is a very mushy thing. Obviously, you want to be honest about like who you're sleeping with and stuff like that. But like, does this look good on me? Am I gaining weight? Yeah, you say it's not. You know, it's not that you look bad in the dress. It's that that dress looks bad on you. Like that's a, it's not that you look bad in it. It's just a bad dress. That's what, you know, we say to people. (laughs) (laughs) Michaela, your character in the movie kind of falls on the other side of this divide because she's always telling her husband that he's doing a great and he's an actor, even if she doesn't like the performance. In a situation like that, do you think it's good to just tell the person that you like their performance, even if you didn't? Or do you just say, I'm proud of you and I'm proud that you did it and then leave? If you're an actor and someone comes up and says, I'm proud of you, you know they hated it and your performance. <laughs> if, if someone... That's a tell. That's a, an absolute tell. <laughs> you know, I've seen people do things where I love their performance and don't love the play or something like that. So I usually find something that I can love about them and tell them that. So I'm not lying, you know, because I'm not a great liar, but I, I will find something, something that I have fallen in love with about them. And if it's your partner, if it's a romantic partner, you better work real hard and find it if you can't. We've kind of gotten into this because obviously many of the characters in the film are artists, you know, a novelist, a designer, an actor, and all the characters grapple with the quality of their work and how it's perceived. And so it sounds like I can safely say that artists are particularly vulnerable to criticism of their work. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, I agree with it, but I would also add that uh, the character of my husband played by the wonderful Tobias Menzies, he plays a therapist and he's also questioning the quality of his work in the film. And so there's a lot of um, self-doubt that threads throughout the, the whole piece. But in terms of artists, yes, of course, because if you're an artist, shall we say, your art is an expression of yourself. And so that is something that's sometimes a a difficult thing to reconcile when you're sort of selling a piece of yourself, as it were. That's something you have to come to terms with as an artist, I think. Especially in arena that is so subjective. Yes, exactly. Yeah, totally. (laughs) This movie is written and directed by Nicole Halifsener, who you've both worked with before. What drew you to working with her again? We couldn't help it. We are drawn to her, both Mikhail and I. And the movies that she makes are movies that, if we weren't in them, I think we'd be going opening weekend (laughs) because these are the movies that we like to see. Musings on human interaction, thoughtful stories about people who are trying to live their life, making mistakes, warts and all. I honestly couldn't say it better. This part was written for Julia when she told me about this and how they were getting back together, I can't express the level of gratitude and joy that I feel that I got, you know, invited into this party because it's just my favorite artists. 
Julia, you have a new podcast called Wiser Than Me, where you talk with older women, including Jane Fonda, Isabel Allende, and Fran Lebowitz. What did you learn from talking to these women about what it means to get older in your career and to find meaning in that? In our culture, I I really do believe, I think it's a fact, that as women age, they become less visible, they become less heard. Their value seems to, in our society, go down to a certain extent, which doesn't make any sense because, after all, they've lived for so many decades, they've got all this experience, they can give us tidbits, they can give us sort of the cliff notes so that perhaps we who are also aging, we're all getting older, but as we go through life, we can take their wisdom and apply it to ours. I mean, there's huge value there. There's a lot. That's a resource that needs to be tapped. You know, your characters in this are sisters, and you guys really seem like sisters, like I have to say. (laughs) Do you think as relationships go on, uh, the nature of honesty changes? Yes. How could it not? I mean, I think as the more history and uh, experience you have with a friend or a partner, maybe there's a, a more open, honest relationship sort of evolves out of that. I think too, by the way, I also want to point out that, you know, originally the role that Michaela plays in this film was the role of Uh, my character's best friend. And Michaela suggested to Nicole that she make us sisters. And it really was a brilliant idea on her part because it elevated what the movie's about. There is something about the sister dynamic and a sister partnership that is different than a friend partnership, even best of friends. Yeah, because we even have to lie to our sisters. You think yes, that's one course. person you don't have to. And and even then, my character still has to somehow make my sister not feel like what just happened was the worst thing that could have happened just now, even though we all agree it was. That's Michaela Watkins and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Their new movie, You Hurt My Feelings, is out now. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. What a pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Enjoy your holiday and be sure to take a moment to think about the service members we remember this Memorial Day. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon, in stores or at hintwater.com and from the Doris Duke Foundation. Stay with us as Weekend Edition Sunday continues at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. It's 67 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 80s.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. Plymouth rock.com slash WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke agreed with those millennials who speak in fake British accents to lower their stress. Adam, you're Irish. I'm sure you're soothed by the sound of a British accent. <laughs> yeah, I, I use it to go to sleep. It's the widest noise. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Don't drift off when you listen to this week's show from New Orleans with special guest John Goodman. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. It's a holiday weekend, but Congress and the White House have been working. They say they have an agreement to avoid default. We'll have the details. But it's not a done deal until Congress approves it. If they don't, there's a lot of bad and possibly one surprising upside. Plus, Mike Bakovin's new novel, Killing It, is a horror comedy mashup. He tells us about his love for the genre. I like to think I can read something very literary and have a good discussion about it, but I'm not going to lie and say that my favorite movie isn't Return of the Living Dead. More brains! It's Sunday, May 28th. News is next. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he expects a vast majority of House Republicans to vote to raise the government's debt ceiling. When the tentative deal he reached with President Biden last night comes up for a House vote as soon as Wednesday. More than 95 percent of all those in the conference were very excited. But think about this. We finally were able to cut spending. We're the first Congress to vote for cutting spending year over year. So you cut that back. You fully fund the veterans, you fully fund defense, but you take that non-defense spending all the way back lower than 22 levels. Speaker McCarthy talking on Fox News Sunday about the deal that would restrict government spending and avert a U.S. default on its bills. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has been following the debt limit talks. If Kevin McCarthy can get a majority of his conference, as he says he wants, to vote for this with Democrats, uh, you know, Democratic leaders seem pretty confident that they're going to be able to deliver the votes on this. Um, you know, certainly going to be some holdouts and those who vote no or who are allowed to vote no. Um, you know, one of the things that some Democrats really wanted was some taxes on corporations to close some of the revenue. Well, that's not in the deal either. And we're probably going to see some machinations by some Republicans on the hard right, as we've seen in the past, try to introduce some amendments that would appease them. 
One of those hard-right Republicans is Texas Congressman Chip Roy, who is threatening to try to sink the debt limit bill. On Twitter, he is urging his conservative colleagues to hold the line. Impeachment proceedings against Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton are now moving to the state Senate. The Texas Senate is to hold a trial after the Republican-controlled House voted 121 to 23 this weekend to impeach Paxton, immediately suspending him from office. But it's unclear when a trial will be held. Texas lawmakers in their legislative session tomorrow. Ukraine says Russia's overnight drone assault on Kyiv was the biggest since its invasion began. Officials say about 40 out of 54 drones targeted the capital. Here's the BBC's Charles Haviland. With Ukraine saying most of these dozens of drones were shot down, President Zelensky has praised Ukraine's air defense forces and rescue services. He said that every time drones and missiles were intercepted, lives were saved. One man was, however, killed by falling debris. The assault came on the day that Kiev celebrates its founding, more than 1,500 years ago. Moscow has pressed on with other attacks. In the Kharkiv region, the governor said Russian shelling had killed two elderly people. Officials say strikes in Kharkiv and Zaporizhia injured at least seven more. Voters in Turkey have been heading to the polls today in a presidential runoff election. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is seeking another five-year term and led his main opposition challenger by a comfortable margin in the first round of voting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Celtics have forced a Game 7 in the Eastern Conference Finals and are on the cusp of making history. Boston beat the Heat in a nail-biter last night in Miami, 104-103. to Derek White tapped in a rebound as time expired. The Celtics are only the fourth team in NBA history to make it to a Game 7 when the playoff series started with three victories for the other team. The deciding Game 7 takes place tomorrow night at the Garden in Boston. No NBA team has ever won a playoff series after losing the first three games. This is the final day of Boston Calling. The three-day music festival in Alston concludes with headliners Paramore and Queens of the Stone Age. Last night, the Lumineers wrapped up a full day of performances at the Harvard Athletic Facility. Scientists are trying to determine why a rare whale washed ashore in Gloucester. Brian Urisitz is with the Seacoast Science Center in Rye, New Hampshire. Along with his team, he's identified the whale as a Sowerby's beaked whale. These animals have a a large melon on their head. Um, They have a very long beak and actually no teeth that are visible. So almost similar to a mix between a whale and a dolphin. These rare whales typically live in the deep North Atlantic. The juvenile female died a week ago, just hours after turning up on the beach in Gloucester. The Peabody Essex Museum in Salem is launching a TikTok creator-in-residence program. The museum says it's the first of its kind for any U.S. art museum. WBUR's Chris de la Guerra has more. Through this experiment with social media, the Peabody Essex hopes to bring the museum's art and collections to new audiences, says Chief Operating Officer Kurt Steinberg. I just want somebody who creates, I think, organic, authentic content for TikTok And we're really jazzed about just listening to what their unique ideas might be. The paid part-time position is posted on the museum's website, PEM.org, for people to apply. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. It's 76 degrees in Boston sunshine today. Highs in the upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. 
working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden says he strongly urges Congress to right away pass an agreement he's made with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to raise the nation's borrowing limit. The deal, NPR has learned, raises the debt limit for two years. It freezes non-defense spending in fiscal year 2024 and allows a 1% increase in 2025. There are no changes to Medicaid and Biden's Inflation Reduction Act remains largely, though not totally, intact. That's the big law passed last summer with tax credits for electric vehicles and money for renewable energy programs, provisions to lower the cost of some prescription drugs, and cap out-of-pocket costs for people on Medicare and new corporate taxes. The debt limit also includes time limits on SNAP benefits for people under 55, with some exceptions. The agreement now goes to Congress, which has just about seven days to debate and pass it. If not, America won't have money to pay service members, Social Security benefits, or the holders of U.S. debt. All this follows weeks of high-stakes negotiations between the White House and House Republicans over how the U.S. government should spend money. Here's Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the deal last night. After weeks of negotiations, we have come to an agreement in principle. We still have a lot of work to do, but I believe this is an agreement in principle that's worthy of the American people. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has been following the ups and downs on Capitol Hill, and she joins us now. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning, Aisha. So what can you tell us about this agreement? We're seeing details still emerging. Speaker McCarthy briefed members about the outlines of the plan and text is still being written. Now, in the final stages of talks, we could see clues of this deal emerging. It was a tense scene for negotiators at the Capitol as we saw members going in and out of McCarthy's office from early in the morning to late into the night these last few days. So there's a lot less talking to reporters, more talking behind closed doors. And McCarthy said he and President Biden spoke twice yesterday ahead of these details you mentioned where we will see this cap on non-defense spending into next year and other agreements in exchange to raise the debt ceiling for two years. So that's after the presidential election. So what were the wins that Republicans were touting? We obtained a one-page summary House Republican leaders were circulating among their conference last night. That sheet listed out plans to limit top-line federal spending to 1% annual growth for the next six years, the clawback of $400 million in unspent pandemic relief funds, and new efforts to revamp the budgeting process. And as you mentioned, we're also expecting to see some changes to work requirements for federal assistance, such as the SNAP food assistance program, changes which President Biden fought against. And McCarthy also talked about some more of these elements in the plan. It has historic reductions in spending, consequential reforms that will lift people out of poverty into the workforce, rein in government overreach. There are no new taxes, no new government programs. And there were losses for Democrats. For example, they proposed new taxes on corporations and wealthier Americans to raise revenue, but that did not hold. So what elements of the agreement did President Biden point to? 
In a statement, Biden said this is an important step forward to reduce spending while still protecting critical programs for working people and the growing economy. He said this deal still protects key Democratic priorities, but at the same time, it represents a compromise. And that means not everyone gets what they want, and that's the responsibility of government. He said ultimately it prevents what would have been a catastrophic default that would have had devastating impacts on the economy. So he urged the deal's passage in both chambers of Congress. So we have a deal. But that that doesn't mean the work is over. Now McCarthy has to make sure he has enough lawmakers to vote for it, right? Right. Yes. In the House, there's been little expectation that the more liberal Democrats and hard right Republicans would support this plan. We're already seeing loud complaints from the conservative House Freedom Caucus. So McCarthy does not need everyone, but he does need to pass it with Democrats' help, especially if we see some Republicans say they're going to vote no. So no one will be breathing easy until it passes both the House and Senate before the June 5 date. This is when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the country would breach the debt ceiling and go into default without an agreement in place. Okay, so we're just about a week away from that date. What should we expect in the coming days? A flurry of action. The bill could come today. So that gives House lawmakers 72 hours to review it before a vote. And that could come as early as Wednesday. This is assuming it gains the majority of of support in the House and it's off to the Senate. But this is the real test now, how members react to the specifics in the legislation and if there's any significant revolt. For example, we saw a lot of Democrats last night applaud the deal but they say they need to see the text to make a final decision. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Claudia, thank you so much. Thank you. If Congress doesn't end up signing on to the deal, the U.S. government defaults, sending shockwaves through the financial system. But in a surprising turn, some forecasters think that would actually increase demand for U.S. government debt. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to explain. Hi, Scott. Hi, Aisha. So why would investors want more government bonds if there are questions about the government's willingness to pay back the money it owes? Yeah, that is kind of weird, right? Ordinarily, you would think a deadbeat borrower would have a harder time finding people to lend him money. But whenever there's turmoil in the financial markets, investors look for a safe place to park their money. And some forecasters think that's still going to be U.S. Treasury bonds, even if, in this case, the turmoil is the result of the federal government not paying its bills. It is strange. It's kind of like climbing into a lifeboat with someone who keeps stirring up the waves. But Josh Lipsky, who's senior director of the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, says there just aren't a lot of other lifeboats around. Uh, Germany is one of the few countries with bonds considered as safe as those in the U.S., and Germany doesn't borrow that much money. Uh, Government bonds in China, Japan, the U.K. all have their own problems. So Lipsky thinks that U.S. government bonds will still be in high demand. Uh, The financial shorthand for this is TINA. That stands for There Is No Alternative. So that just means that there are few options and the options that exist can't handle the size of demand that might come to them, which make U.S. Treasuries the natural alternative to come back to, ironically. Now, that doesn't mean people are going to buy short-term U.S. bonds, the ones coming due right in the middle of this debt ceiling fight. Those are pretty unpopular right now. But if you look just a little further out, once the dust settles, it looks like plenty of people would still be willing to lend the U.S. government money at fairly low interest rates. Well, does that mean that we don't really have to worry about the debt ceiling fight? 
I don't think we should be complacent about that. Uh, some people might remember the old Lily Tomlin sketch about the phone company. You know, we don't care. We don't have to. That's a dangerous attitude. That kind of monopoly power doesn't necessarily last forever, especially when you throw your weight around carelessly. Uh, competitors eventually sprang up to challenge the phone company, and Lipsky says the U.S. shouldn't take its position in the global financial system for granted either. I do think there's global fatigue directed toward the U.S., and while there is no alternative in the short term, that doesn't mean that other countries and investors around the world are not looking for alternatives in the long term. Countries do not want to be so reliant on a system which they see from their perspective right now as dysfunctional. Lipsky says it's a privilege that people all over the world want to buy U.S. treasuries. It lets our government borrow money at very low cost, and there are real economic advantages that come from that. He says the U.S. shouldn't squander that, certainly not as casually as some members of Congress seem willing to do. Both the president and the House Speaker have said they're determined to resolve this in a way that doesn't result in a government default. Has there been any fallout, though, from just coming this close? It certainly hasn't been a good look. Uh, You remember earlier this month, the president had to cancel his planned trip to Australia, where he was going to meet with Asia-Pacific leaders. And what would have been the first ever presidential visit to Papua New Guinea, just because he had to come home and deal with this manufactured crisis. The White House downplayed the geopolitical cost of that, but other countries take note. You know, this worries our friends. It emboldens our rivals. Rohit Kumar, who is a former advisor to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, says an actual default would be an even bigger blow to American leadership. It's hard to imagine a scenario where our standing in the world is improved because we have defaulted on our debt and self-inflicted an economic crisis, not only on ourselves, but perhaps on the rest of the world. It's hard to see how that's a pro-American diplomacy move in the grand scheme of things. Kumar, who's now at PricewaterhouseCoopers, was speaking at an event this past week sponsored by the Concord Coalition, which tries to promote fiscal responsibility. Uh, He added that any actual reduction in government spending that comes out of this fight is likely to be pretty small and certainly not worth the risk of rocking the global economic boat. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much. You're welcome. With the sound of the clerk ringing the bell, there was a stunning development in the Texas House of Representatives yesterday. Mr. Murr voting aye. One headline called it an intra-GOP showdown, but when the votes were in... Have all members voted? 121 House members, including 60 Republicans, voted to impeach Texas State Attorney General Ken Paxton. The resolution is adopted. The chair directs the chief clerk to notify the governor of the House's actions. The impeachment stems from allegations made by former staffers of Ken Paxton, accusing him of bribery, improper influence, and abuse of office. The allegations date back to 2020, but a few months ago, Paxton announced he'd reached a settlement of $3.3 million with the staffers and asked the state to pick up the tab. That led to a Texas House committee investigation and eventually yesterday's impeachment. Ken Paxton has denied any allegations of wrongdoing, calling the proceedings a sham. Next up, a trial in the Texas Senate where members include Paxton's own wife.
You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, our chat with the Boston Globe's Nicole Yang about the Celtics' dramatic last-second victory last night in Miami. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Over 70 years of artisanal craftsmanship rooted in community and sustainability. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. The Kate Playhouse in Dennis Village. Opening June 7th with the Fats Waller musical, Eight Misbehaven. After that, it's Jersey Boys and more. Tickets at CatePlayhouse.com. And Babson College. Hone your business skills at the school ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Build your success story at babson.edu success. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says a debt ceiling deal he reached with President Biden last night is popular with a strong majority of House Republicans. He spoke on Fox News Sunday. Even as hardline Republicans are threatening to sink the agreement, the House could vote on it as soon as Wednesday. Impeachment proceedings against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton are now moving to the state Senate. The Senate is to hold a trial after the House voted this weekend to suspend Paxton, but it's not clear when that trial would begin. The Texas legislative session ends tomorrow. And the iconic Indianapolis 500 is being run today for the 107th time. More than 30 drivers are in the field and some 300,000 spectators are expected to be on hand at the Brickyard. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's election day in Turkey again. President Erdogan failed to get a clear majority two weeks ago. Many analysts suggest his strong showing in the first round does bode well for extending his run as Turkey's leader. NPR's Peter Kenyon is in Istanbul and joins us now. Good morning. Hi, Aisha. So, Peter, what are you seeing at polling stations today? Well, it was nothing like round one, at least in terms of turnout at the places I visited. Uh, Back on May 14th, turnout was put at more than 88 percent, extremely high. Uh, But at the polling stations I visited today, there were no lines of people snaking out the door down the street. Uh, Voters who had taken 30 to 40 minutes to cast their vote in round one, they were finished in about five minutes this time. Uh, So turnout appears to be down. Some voters did tell me they were ready for someone other than Erdogan to be in charge. Uh, Like all the people interviewed for this story, 80-year-old Zeynep didn't want to give her family name. Uh, She, like others, is concerned that there could be official retaliation of some kind for talking to the foreign media about the election. As Zeynep heard here through an interpreter, told me there are some key issues besides the feeling that Erdogan's 20 years in office are enough, in her opinion. 
%100 şeyin üzerine eğilmelik, kadına şiddete. First of all, 100% they should focus on violence against women. That's a very important issue. And beyond that, they should deal with corrupt businesses and the manipulation of the currency. Whether is good should happen. Whether it's going to happen or not, I'm a bit pessimistic about that. Change is a must, but I can only hope it will happen. Now, besides the bad economy, Erdogan's also running after receiving harsh criticism for his government's response to the devastating earthquake earlier this year in southern Turkey. But even so, he polled higher in round one than his challenger Kemal Kilic Darulu, and by a comfortable margin. What are Erdogan voters saying about their candidate now? Well, their general theme might be described as, we need a tough leader to get the country through tough times. That was certainly the sentiment among a group of men I met in front of a vendor's cart. It was selling a simit, that's sometimes called Turkey's version of a bagel. But here's a bit of what they had to say. Now, 52-year-old Zafir there was naming Turkey's grocery store chains where prices have skyrocketed. Zafir said they should be forced to close for 15 days as punishment. At that point, another man, 32-year-old Hayratin, interjected. He said that wouldn't scare them enough. He thinks the owners should be thrown in jail. So there's plenty of anger to go around, uh, if not full agreement about to what extent Erdogan and his government should bear the blame. So what are some of the other issues that dominated the campaign? Well, immigration is a big one, especially the growing conclusion among many Turkish families that they've done enough hosting of refugees and migrants for a while. It's been more than a decade since Syrians and others feeling, fearing conflict at home or economic hardship began pouring into Turkey, drastically changing the population in some areas. Now, both Erdogan and Kilic Darolu are vowing to send the migrants home, and as the campaign went on, Kilic Darolu pledged to get it done within one year. And what about Turkey's relations with the West? What impact might this vote have on that? Well, it's certainly a major issue, and it's being watched closely. Uh, for instance, should Kilis Dirolu somehow uh, pull out a victory here, the West could look to see Sweden's bid to join NATO, for example, quickly approved. Uh, Turkey had been blocking it, and still, it finally approved Finland's accession bid not long ago. Erdogan is still demanding Sweden extradite scores of people uh, that Turkey considers to be terrorists. Now, beyond that, there are other questions. Turkey's purchase of Russian missiles is a problem in Washington. What impact might that have on its ability to upgrade its fleet of F-16 fighter jets? Uh, so this race is likely uh, being closely watched in a number of world capitals. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul, thank you very much. Thanks, Aisha. June is LGBTQ Pride Month, and some businesses want in on the event and the market. They have advertising campaigns, Pride-logoed products, and maybe partnerships with queer influencers. But some companies are pulling back from that effort. Target announced that it will be removing some of its Pride Month products after receiving backlash against the items and threats against its workers. And some Bud Light consumers boycotted the beer after the brand partnered with trans actress Dylan Mulvaney in a recent campaign. Catherine Sender is a professor of media and sexuality in the communication department at Cornell University, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. What do corporate pride campaigns look like and why do companies do these campaigns in the first place? Well, I think we've seen a development over the last, well, really since the 90s. Initially, corporations were interested in targeting gay and lesbian consumers, as they were thought of then, through 
things like booths at pride events, maybe having a float or something like that. And then thinking that they could kind of fly under the radar and not get any kind of right wing backlash in doing that. What's really changed is that now there's almost an imperative for marketers and companies to signal during June that they are in solidarity with and supportive of LGBTQ communities and particularly really want to court LGBTQ consumers and their allies. These companies, when they're doing these campaigns, the bottom line is that they want to make money, right? They're trying to attract customers. I mean, obviously, their bottom line is to make money, though we have seen some really significant progress, I think, in LGBTQ visibility, partly through the ways in which companies have courted LGBTQ consumers. So I think that there's this sort of reciprocal effect that as companies become more LGBTQ friendly, then similarly, we're seeing some kind of political change as well. Was there always a backlash to any of these types of campaigns? The tradition has really been consumer boycotts. So early on, national companies were very worried about religious right boycotts as really kind of affecting their bottom line. What's really shifted is that boycotts now are much more active from LGBTQ consumers and their allies. So companies are really worried that they're going to alienate this you know, huge market, particularly in terms of younger consumers. And I think people's right to boycott, you know, whatever political place you are on the spectrum, boycotts are a fine way of exercising your democratic and consumer rights. What's really troubling me about what's happening more recently is violence directed towards you know, in the case of Target, their employees. And also we're seeing the targeting of um, some of the marketing personnel who've been involved with these campaigns, those people getting doxxed, they're getting harassed, you know, they've had death threats on social media and really feeling very personally attacked. And I think that this is a different kind of dimension and a newer dimension of the backlash against LGBTQ marketing. Are these campaigns or have they been important in changing people's ideas and changing their behavior? I think that marketing has been part of a general cultural opening um, really since the early 2000s towards the inclusion of LGBTQ people in all sorts of areas of, of life. The most contested issue right now is around transgender inclusivity. And I think that was part of the issue with Dylan Mulvaney, which was not just that she is in the queer community, but she's also a trans woman. And I understand that the most vociferous resistance to Target's products was to do with um, transgender related materials. So I think even though we're seeing in some part of the country gay and lesbian exclusion again, you know, in places like Florida and Texas and Tennessee, The most contested area right now is around transgender inclusion. What do you say to those people who look at pride campaigns by corporations and things of that nature and look at it as rainbow washing? The accusation of rainbow washing tends to go towards companies who are seen as doing a very kind of superficial job. You know, they bop into the area of gay marketing in June and we don't hear anything more about them for the rest of the year in that realm. They're not really connected with the community that they don't have any queer or transgender or non-binary people involved in the production of campaigns. So because of social media, particularly young people are extremely attentive to the authenticity and value of the commitment. If that's perceived to be shallow, 
then it's actually really unfortunate for the companies. So I think companies are really trying to work very hard now to produce committed and authentic LGBTQ media and marketing campaigns. That's Catherine Sinder. She's a professor in the Department of Communication and a part of the Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program at Cornell University. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. Family and friends in Uvalde are still mourning now more than a year since a man with a semi-automatic rifle killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School. And for law enforcement, last week's one-year mark is a sad reminder of the mistakes their colleagues made that day. As NPR's Martin Costi reports, the state of Texas has now passed a law requiring more training to try to avoid repeating those failures. Everybody agrees on this. Police took too long to directly confront the killer that day. 73 minutes from the arrival of the first officers until the moment a Border Patrol team finally went through a classroom door and shot him. In that time, 376 officers from various agencies showed up and then held back. Sympathetic hesitation is actually a fairly normal human impulse. You're not going? Should I not go if you're not going? Clint Bruce is former military special operations who now works with police. He says you have to teach them to overcome that impulse in these situations. Very explicit, very clear guidance that you do not have to pause. You need to go. That was the central lesson of the Columbine High School massacre in 1999. Police should move in as fast as possible to stop the killing and then stop the dying. And trainers believe the best way to learn this is to do it. These Texas cops are running through active shooter scenarios in a vacant building near Dallas. They're firing simulated ammunition, trying to find and stop the killer, even as wounded role players cry for help. This is ALERT. That stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, something created here in Texas two decades ago. Its active shooter courses have become a federal standard, and now Texas is requiring all its cops to do 16 hours of this training every two years. The courses are updated often. For instance, trainer Randy Knight tells this class that research is showing that there's rarely a second shooter, so once cops have stopped one killer, they shouldn't leave wounded people behind to go looking for possible other attackers. Do these victims in here that are bleeding out, do they have time for me to go chase a ghost. No, because before I even get off this first floor, they'll have bled out. One clear failure in Uvalde was leadership. A Texas State House report said the role of incident commander was, quote, not effectively performed by anyone. This alert training session is stressing the importance of command and that it's not a matter of rank. Trainer Kevin Willis tells one officer to imagine being the first cop on the scene and how he would identify himself as he calls it in on the radio. Who are you? 47. Who are you? Control. Nope. Command. command. You are command. Here's what I need to establish right here. The first officer helps make or break this entire scene. Command can be transferred as the incident progresses and more people show up, preferably to an officer outside the building. But it needs to be someone who knows the situation and is willing to take command. Steve Iams says willingness is key. Based in Missouri, he trains officers around the country. 
And when Uvalde comes up, he tells cops that they also need to prepare for this mentally. You would talk with your family and acknowledge that though unlikely this job may call me to uh, step into an environment on behalf of others, reconcile that decision before you have to make it, uh, before the hair stands up on the back of their neck. And as an example of mental preparedness, he points to the police who responded to the active shooter attack on a school in Nashville in March. It's seen in police circles as a textbook case of doing this right. Sadly, for those who are looking for examples of cops responding to active shooters right or wrong, there's always a new supply of case studies for the trainers to choose from. Martin Costi, NPR News, Irving, Texas. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And what a good morning it is for Celtics fans. In Miami last night, in a game with a wild finish, the Celtics defeated the Heat 104 to 103. That evens up the series at three games apiece. The Eastern Conference Finals Series now returns to Boston for a decisive Game 7 tomorrow night. Boston Globe reporter Nicole Yang covers the Celtics and joins us this morning from the airport in Miami. <laughs> Nicole, thanks for speaking with this. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm still kind of catching my breath. Yeah, I think everybody is still in disbelief about what happened last night, players and coaches included. What a wild finish. Right. Well, the the Celtics had a 10-point lead with about four minutes to go, and then, you know, things happened. So why don't you give us a quick recap of the situation, you know, from that point, about four minutes out, until the Heat's Jimmy Butler stepped to the free throw line for three shots with three seconds left in the game. Last night, it was really Jimmy Butler who powered the Heat, um, to that comeback, he got to the line. He scored 11 straight, I believe. And on that final foul, Joe Mazzula challenged it. And it initially was ruled just a two-point foul on the floor, but they changed it to a three-point foul after the review, which ended up giving the Heat the opportunity to take the lead. Right, and, and, and Butler makes all three of those free throws, gets Miami a one-point lead with three seconds left. So speak to us now of the last three seconds of the game. Yeah, so three seconds is enough time. So they inbound the ball, and the Heat's goal was to just not get the ball to Jason Tatum. They wanted to take away that option, and so they left Derek White open, and he was able to crash the boards and put back Marcus Smart's missed three. Yeah, that was pretty wild. What was what was going through your mind as you were, you know, right there watching the drama unfold? So I thought it was clean just based on watching it in real time. You could tell that nobody on the court really knew what happened. But as soon as they showed the replay on the Jumbotron, it was very obvious that he had gotten the shot up and the Celtics started celebrating and the Heat just sort of sat there shell-shocked. So you, uh, after the game, you spoke with Derek White. What did what did you hear? I mean, the Celtics last night was an incredible win for them, but they still do have one more game to win in order to advance to the NBA Finals. So I believe that they're trying to sort of 
temper the celebration and sort of continue to look ahead and recognize that like the job's not finished. So Derek is all about the team and wanted to sort of focus on the collective effort as opposed to his individual contributions. Nicole, the Celtics now have a chance to make history. No NBA team has come back to win a seven-game series after losing the first three games of the series. You are the subject matter expert here. Do you think the Celtics can do it? I do, and I think what they have on their side is that typically in these situations, it's the roles are reversed. Um, It's the underdog sort of making this incredible comeback and they're the ones sort of fighting against history but the Celtics are the two seed and they just happened to fall behind 0-3 against the eight seed so the circumstances couldn't match up better for them they have home court this will be played tomorrow at TD Garden I think that of all the previous 150 series they definitely have the best shot Well, should be some exciting basketball. Uh, Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Nicole Yang covers the Celtics for the Boston Globe. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com and the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid. bc.edu slash msae. Coming up today at noon here on 90.9 WBUR, a conversation with E. Jean Carroll and her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, about their court case that found Donald Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation. That's at 12 o'clock. Listen to 90.9 WBUR. Listen online at WBUR.org or listen with the WBUR app. It's 76 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today. Highs in the upper 80s. Lows in the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow is sunny. Memorial Day. Monday's highs in the mid-60s. Join us at City Space Monday, June 5th. New York Times cooking writer Hetty McKinnon discusses her new cookbook, Tender Heart. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke agreed with those millennials who speak in fake British accents to lower their stress. Adam, you're Irish. I'm sure you're soothed by the sound of a British accent. <laughs> yeah, I, I use it to go to sleep. It's the widest noise. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Don't drift off when you listen to this week's show from New Orleans with special guest John Goodman. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary 2 with a commitment to white star service, fine dining, and entertainment. QNAR.com slash crossing. This is NPR. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, remind us of last week's challenge. Yes, it turned out to be a killer. It came from Mike Reese, who's a writer and producer for The Simpsons. I said, name a place in Europe in nine letters, swap the third and fourth letters, then the eighth and ninth letters, and the result is two words describing what this place famously does. The answer is Stromboli. Do you know that? That uh, it's a volcanic island off the coast of Sicily, Stromboli. And you make those changes, you get storm and boil, which is what a volcano does. Oh, my goodness. No, I did not know. I, the only Stromboli I know is like the food. Isn't it like a sandwich? Yeah, something like <laughs> yeah. that. So this one was really, really hard, okay, because only 43 submissions were correct. And one of those was from Srinidhi Rye of Pleasanton, California. She is our winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you, Aisha. Hi, Will. Hey. So how did you get the answer? Because very, I mean, less than 50 people in America, in the world, got this right. Yeah, this was a tough one, like you said. But, uh, you know, my husband, my uh, seventh grader and I, every week we solve the puzzle together. So, you know, this was team effort. We went over landmarks and racetrack names and things like that. And eventually, finally, just before the deadline, we came across Tromboli and that matched the question. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. And this is a family effort. And so I understand that your family is very jealous right now. Exactly. Like, we have been rehearsing this call for the last three or four years now. (laughs) And uh, my daughter, when she's going to listen to this, she's going to be really jealous. Oh, yes. This is my lucky day. (laughs) This is your lucky day. Well, you know what? You, You don't have your family with you right now, but I feel like you are more than ready to get this puzzle underway. So I got to ask you, Srinity, are you ready to play the puzzle? I think so. <laughs> you are. You definitely are. Take it away, Will. All right, Trinity and Aisha, I'm going to give you two three-letter words. Mm-hmm. Think of another three-letter word that can follow my first one and precede the second one, in each case to complete a compound word or a familiar two-word phrase. For example, if I said red and lid, you would say I to make red eye and eyelid. Okay, got it. Here we go. It's always a three-letter answer, and your first one is fat, F-A-T, and nap, N-A-P. Cat. You got it. Fat cat and catnap. Good. P, P-E-A, and Meg, M-E-G. P. Something to eat. P soup? No. And uh, what, what would blank Meg be? I'm blacking out. Pea pod, pea soup, pea... Nutmeg. So... Oh, nut. Good job, Aisha. Yeah, peanut and nutmeg. (laughs) Your next one is wet, W-E-T, and hop, H-O-P. Wet hip-hop. Wet hip, hip-hop. Not a wet hip, no. Uh, Gosh, I'm blanking out. If you're having a night on the town, you might blank hop. Uh, Pub. 
What's another word for a pub? A bar, 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 wet bar. Yes, yes, yes. There you go. A wet bar is something you'd have in your house, maybe, and a bar hop, right. Try this one, bow, B-O-W, and die, D-Y-E. Uh, bow leg, leg die, no, bow, bow tie, tie die, yeah. You got it, tie die, good. Bad, B-A-D, mm-hmm. and nog, N-O-G. Oh, N-O-G, egg, bad egg and eggnog. Eggnog, you got it. Hot, H-O-T, and leg, L-E-G. Hot tub, tub leg, no, hot, hot, hot dog, dog leg. Hot dog and dog leg. Yeah, we might have hot dogs this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Try this one. Pop, P-O-P, and rod, R-O-D. Pop, 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 pop. Uh, The first one is baseball related. Pop blank. Okay. I'm not good at sport. What is the second one? (laughs) Yeah, pop. (laughs) And the second one has to do with fishing. Blank Uh, rod. What? Three letters. Cord rod? No. What's fishing? Uh, All right. Your first letter is F. Uh, fit rod? I don't know. A fly? Like pop fly? Pop fly and a fly rod. Right. Thank you, Aisha. Old, O-L-D, and tip, T-I-P. Old top, top tip. No. Old uh, boy, boy tip. Old guy, guy tip. No. What? If you want to thank somebody for something, you give them a blank tip. Uh, hat tip. You got it. An old hat, right? Oh, yeah. Old hat and hat tip. Try this one. T, T-E-A, and pie, P-I-E. Pot. Teapot. That was fast. Teapot and pot pie. And your last one is pig, P-I-G, and pal, P-A-L. Pal. Uh, pen. Pen pal and pig pen. You got it. Pig pen and pen pal. Nice job. I knew you'd be good. Thank you. You did awesome for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pen as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Trinity, what member station do you listen to? I listen to KQED, San Francisco. That's Trinity Rye of Pleasanton, California. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you, Will. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Much easier than last week's. It comes from listener Peter Collins of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Think of a well-known author, nine letters in the first name, six letters in the last. Change the first letter of the last name and anagram those six letters to spell a word. Now read everything together, the author's first name and the anagram with the letter change of the last name and you'll get a member of a certain professional sports team. Who is it? So again, well-known author, 9-6, change the first letter of the last name, rearrange those six letters to spell a word, read everything together, the author's first name, and the anagram of the last name, and you'll get a member of a certain professional sports team. Who is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, June 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. 
out a little adventure this holiday weekend, like maybe a paddling trip alongside migrating birds with NPR's Brian Mann. It's not like there's a bird song here and a bird song there. It's just this kind of wash of sound. A visit to a wildlife refuge in northern Vermont. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition, and you can listen from anywhere, on your radio or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. There's usually nothing worse for a comic than bombing on stage, just standing on stage in a dead, silent club. But for the comedians in a new horror novel from Mike Bakovin, telling a bad joke is the least of their concerns. They're fighting for their lives. Killing It follows a group of comics stuck in a club with a deadly adversary. Author Mike Bakovin joins us now to talk about the horror comedy mashup. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Comedians have to be a bit fearless because, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to get in front of a crowd and try to be funny. This book kind of turns that on its head because you have this real crisis where you see characters struggle with what it means to be courageous, right? Yeah. Uh, first off, I love horror comedy in the first place. And when you get a really good horror comedy there's almost nothing better. You know, mm -hmm. I, I tell people that I like to think I can understand Bergman or I like to think I can read something very literary and have a good discussion about it, but I'm not going to lie and say that my favorite movie isn't Return of the Living Dead, you know? Okay. Just, yeah. <laughs> just, just a, <laughs> horror comedy is great when it works. And, and so that's kind of what I was shooting for. But to your question, the idea that it takes bravery to do this thing is, and I learned kind of in the research, kind of undercut by the fact that a lot of people who go into stand-up really have this desire to do it, and it's that desire that drives them to do this big, scary thing and then get good at it. And so you take that, turn it on its head a little bit, you take it into the horror realm, and I thought that was uh, more or less a compelling idea. Mm. These characters, they crack jokes, even at times when it may be dangerous <laughs> for them to do so. Do you feel like that's a fundamental part of being a comedian, like using humor to survive any situation? I think the idea of being inappropriate and then doing this inappropriate thing in an appropriate venue, that's a fascinating idea. Going on stage and, and talking about intimate stuff and controversial stuff and political stuff and whatever else a comedian is going to talk about and then get off stage and just immediately flip that switch and not be that way. And I think the answer that, that I've seen and just gleaned from being a stand-up comedy fan all my life is some of them can and some of them can't, you know, and, and I think that's, uh, that's fine without being a stand-up myself. The comics in this book, they're all in very, like, different places in their career when they end up fighting for their lives. The one that really stood out to me is Jackie. She's a veteran comedian in the boys' club that is the comedy world, and she's experiencing some newfound success. Tell us a bit about Jackie and her brand of comedy. 
Yeah, Jackie Carmichael, uh, the character, like all the characters, are kind of a, a jamming together of some comics that I really like and and uh, have followed over the years. You know, there's a bit of Jackie Cation, you know, hence the first name. There's a bit of uh, just kind of road dog comics, the people who have gone out, done the work a bunch, and then come back and found success in a different venue. And I love that about comedy because you find a lot of comedians turn out to be real good dramatic actors. And I've also heard it doesn't work the other way. You know, a lot of dramatic actors can't be funny. No. So it, no. <laughs> it's like... I don't want to see Tom Cruise do stand-up, you know? So yeah. it's... No, no. Well, I mean, the women in this book are really the stars of the book and in many ways the heroes of the book. But let's not sugarcoat this. The men in the book are pretty terrible to women. I mean, like horrible. I mean, and there is some physical and sexual violence. And then you have men who like ghost their dates and don't return phone calls or like just bump women from their stand-up slots. What are you trying to say about this male-dominated industry of comedy? (laughs) Uh, What am I trying to say? Excellent question. As with some of the dysfunction that comes with a lot of great comedians, I don't think you need to look too hard to find to find women not being treated fairly in any number of facets of our of our society. And I imagine stand-up is very tough for women. And again, I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. This is me kind of being a fan and gleaning these things without being a, a straight white guy who is the last person you want to hear his opinion on these sort of things. Um it just seemed kind of obvious, you know, that if you're going to create these characters and make your heroes women, that they're going to have to deal with some pretty awful men aside from, you know, and we're spoiling the book, aside from the main, uh, one of the main characters who's upstairs with a knife trying to kill everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and that was a theme I kind of hit on early on. I mean, even the, quote unquote, good ones were, you know, very easy to step over someone else if it was going to get them a a leg up in their career. And consulting with a stand-up friend of mine, he's like, yeah, you got that. You got that pretty close. I'm like, okay, good to know. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that you love horror comedy. Now you said Return of the... the, the Yeah, Return of the Living Dead. That's just absolutely one of my favorite movies just because it is uh, both very funny, very gruesome and has the... How do I want to put it? No characters in it are dumb. Everyone does things that make a lot of sense. And even while following logic and trying their best to get out of their situation, they just make everything exponentially worse. <laughs> Every decision just makes it worse and worse mm. and worse until it's it's just terrible. Are there any horror movies? There are a lot of horror movies that might be unintentionally funny. Do you have any of those that you watch that you find to be unintentionally funny? How much time do you have, Aisha? I can... <laughs> yes, I could make you a list of just trying to think of what what jumps off uh, from the top of my mind. But yeah, the thing about that, I'm in my mid-40s. When I was in my 20s, you watch some of those movies and you laugh and you're like, ha look at the at the people who didn't know what they were doing, who made kind of a bad movie and you laugh at it. And as you get older, and especially as you start your own artistic endeavors, you start to go, wait a second, these people were doing a lot with a little. Even those trashy 80s slasher movies someone was putting in the work, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and as someone who's tried to put in the work, you're like, I admire what you were trying to do. I mean, you hauled a camera out there, man. You got some friends who decided to do some gore effects. You, you went swimming, you know, <laughs> just 
all the stuff you got to do. That's author Mike Bakovin. His new book, Killing It, is out now. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, if I could encourage your listeners to pick up a horror book, because there are a lot of people out there doing a lot of great stuff, uh, I think you'd have a good time. Return of the Living Dead. Return of the Living Dead. Return, return, return of the Living Dead. I walk the dark and narrow path, and that's for sure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to shorten the gap between cancer research and cancer care. Learn more about Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com slash careers. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 76 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the upper 80s. Tomorrow for Memorial Day, sunny, highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Fans of HBO Succession have no clue what's coming Sunday night, but among the possible plot twists, there is this one certainty. It's all coming to an end. This whole family is a nest of vipers. They'll wrap themselves around you, and they'll suffocate you. We unpack the Succession series finale Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.